Well, good morning. If you're new with us, we have begun a sermon series going through Ruth and Esther, and today we are in Ruth chapter 2. When things in life go in an unexpected direction, when disappointments set in, when the grass begins to grow over the grave of our dead hopes and dreams, where should we turn? Is there any hope of life after loss? Is there any comfort after mourning? Is there a redeemer after ruin? I think the British poet William Cooper argues that there is. In gentle words, he brings the good news of God's good and sovereign intentions. And I just want you to listen carefully to this poem, especially for those of you that have been in suffering over this last year or who are looking at going through suffering in the time to come. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds that you must dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I'm just going to hone in on that last sentence a little bit. God is his own interpreter. How often have you been left in the midst of your suffering, the midst of your hardship, scanning the work of God and wondering, what in the world is he doing? And it's up to God to be his own interpreter at that moment. I think we could gain a lot just from dwelling on Cooper's poem. But for now, let's just consider how his poem, God Works in Mysterious Ways, might help us to better understand Ruth's and Naomi's experience in chapter 2. When we last left Naomi, we saw a woman who was deeply wounded by God's providence, deeply hurt and in pain because of the sovereignty and the sovereign plan that was beginning to unfold in her life. She went so far in her grief to even change her name from Naomi, which means pleasant one, to Mara, which means bitter one. In her mind, and, and she wasn't completely inaccurate in this, in her mind, the Almighty was the one that is bringing all these things, all these calamities, all these problems, all these troubles upon her. And since we know that God is a sovereign God, I think we kind of have to agree, at least to an extent with her, right? I mean, God is sovereign, and so... If bad things come to his people, God has somehow either allowed it, passed it through, or, or he has some kind of purpose in it. I mean, God's not bound by the circumstances of men, right? So if something bad has happened, then our good and sovereign God has somehow allowed it. So Naomi is at least in part right, but she does not yet fathom why that's good news and how the Lord has a good and redemptive purpose in everything he has done. For her at the moment, the bud has a bitter taste, but she does not yet see how sweet the flower will be. 
She sees the frowning providence, but she doesn't see the smiling face. In Ruth 1, her unbelief leaves her scanning God's providential work in vain. However, in Ruth 2, God begins to be his own interpreter, and soon his own redemptive purposes become plain. God's sovereignty has indeed dealt a severe blow, and yet in his sovereign love, he will not leave his people without a redeemer. So just connecting with our own lives and our own experiences, we shouldn't be judging the Lord with our feeble sense. What looks like it's bad, broken, ruined, shattered right now may be God's way of bringing together this redemptive purpose and plan in our lives. Let him interpret himself. Don't interpret his work for him. Let God be his own interpreter. Ruth 2 shows us that behind the frowning providence of death and suffering and loss and mourning and Moab stands the smiling face of Boaz, the Redeemer. So we're going to read Ruth 2 today, trying to engage it with our own experience. We're going to try to see why it's good news that God works in this way, why he doesn't always show us his smiling face first. Sometimes the frowning providence comes first, and then the smiling face. Sometimes it's bitter and then sweet, and sometimes that works together so that we can enjoy the sweetness even more, so that we can highlight the glory of God even more. So God's going to work in Ruth 2 in a way that leaves us standing in awe of just his manifold grace. As Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, they face a very uncertain future. In the ancient world, it's difficult to imagine someone more vulnerable than a widow who also had no children, okay? So if you were a widow and you had grown kids, you were, you were okay, okay? You had kids to take care of you. You had a family to take care of you. But to be a widow with no children means you are absolutely, completely, unequivocally on your own. There is no one there to keep you from starving to death. There is no one there to patch the roof when it springs a leak. You are absolutely on your own. Just imagine the tragedy of what would happen if you found out that your husband and all your kids and all the family that you've been connected with died in a terrible plane crash. That's essentially where Naomi and Ruth are at at this moment. They have no one left. Life's uncertain, no one there to protect them. Now you add this to the fact that Ruth is an ethnic member of one of Israel's most hated enemies, the Moabites, and you get a particularly precarious situation. A widow who has no kids to care for her, and a former daughter-in-law who is, belongs to the enemies of the people of God. It's, it's, not, it's not the best of situations. Things are not looking up for these women when Ruth makes the suggestion to go out the glean. So we tend to read these stories so quick because we already know what the outcome's going to be that we don't really feel the impact of Ruth leaving to go glean. We just assume, okay, this is where it's going to get good. She doesn't know that yet. When she walks out the door, if anything, she is hoping to scrape together just enough barley off the ground so that her and Naomi can eat that night. I mean, seriously, she's going out to forage. What is that word? Yes, the forage. And that's what she's trying to do. Just enough, just enough to scrape by an existence. 
And I think it's important to read Ruth 1 and 2 in light of this uncertainty because it highlights the hidden hand of God. She knows nothing. She does not know where she should go. She doesn't know to whom she can go. She doesn't know who a redeemer might be. She doesn't know any of these things. She simply walks out her door, begins picking up grain, and then suddenly she chances upon the field of Boaz. The narrator stresses the seemingly coincidental meeting between Ruth and Boaz. He writes, and he does it in the most magnificent way possible, she happened. In Hebrew, it's her chance chanced upon. Okay, so if you want to emphasize the fact that this was all a coinkydink and accidental, then you just say her chance chanced upon, and that's what he says. Her chance chanced upon to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The Hebrew word for happened here, as I've mentioned already, could imply chance, accident, coincidence. It is completely circumstantial coincidental, unplanned. Of all the fields in Bethlehem to glean from, she just happens to stumble across the field that belongs to Boaz, who is related to the the man, making him a potential redeemer. Now, you just want to highlight in this the fact that at the same time, Israel's in a really bad state. There's lots of bad people in Bethlehem at this point. There's lots of covenant breakers in Bethlehem at this point, and yet she makes it to Boaz, Boaz's field. She begins to glean. Now she happens to be gleaning in the field. Behold, Boaz arrives. Now at this point, you're probably wondering why they haven't made a Hallmark movie out of this, right? Because, I mean, this is all of you. Christmas is about to come, right? And there's some of you that have already subscribed to the Hallmark Channel or to some other channel that is going to have all these gross kind of romantic movies on there, right? Some guy's in there buying a cookie. He drops it and it rolls to the feet of the one he ends up falling in love with. You know, it's like, you, we, we, I, my wife watches these things. <laughs> and I have to tolerate them. <clears throat> but the story of Ruth and Boaz is very much like that in the sense of it seems completely accidental. But what you don't see happening on the field, what, what seems like to be stumbling and chancing upon and co- coincidentally coming into Boaz's field is actually God at work. It looks like a serendipity, but there's a sovereign serendipity at play. Even our accidental footsteps, even our trips and our stumbles and our mindless roaming falls under the sovereignty of God. Do you hear the good news in that? It doesn't, it doesn't I, I think we sometimes struggle with sin because we want to be so intentional because we don't want to sin. My friends, yes, don't sin. Don't go mindlessly wandering around the world. But at the same time, I think it helps to know that God is sovereign even over our accidental, unplanned, unintentional, misguided steps. Ruth has no clue where she's going, but God does. Ruth has no idea what's drawing her closer and closer to this field, but God does. God's hand may at times be hidden. Everything may seem coincidental, happenstantial, and accidental to us, and yet it is all according to a divine plan that God is working for our redemption, our good, 
and his glory. That's good news for us. Now, the narrative takes a turn for the better when Boaz arrives on the scene. The whole tone of the story changes. I mean, we've, we've been listening to this story in Ruth 1 and just hearing this overtone of death and loss and mourning and sadness and bitterness. And then in Ruth 2, it changes. And in verse 1, this man who's described as a worthy man arrives on the field. Now, we don't know what that means exactly. Worthy can mean wealthy. Worthy can mean powerful. Worthy can mean upright. I think in the context, it means that. So this upright man, who also happens to have quite a bit of money, um, walks onto the field, and it's this worthy man that brings, eventually, brings redemption. So the whole story begins to change when Boaz arrives on the field. Now, that's not too different from the whole story of humanity. Everything's bad and kind of humdrum and sad and like a dirge until the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. I mean, that's the idea here is that when the redeemer walks into the field, the entire tone of the story changes. It is a dirge and it is sad and it is broken until the redeemer comes. And then the whole tone of the story changes for us. Now, here's what I want to paint for us today. Boaz, as a redeemer from Bethlehem, points us forward to an even greater redeemer from Bethlehem. Boaz's redemption, his character, his person, his work, everything he does in Ruth chapter 2, ultimately points us forward to what we're going to find in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the man from Boaz, who came to bring redemption. First, Boaz is a redeemer who brings blessing. When Boaz comes into the field, the very first words out of his mouth are a blessing. Now, if you like to read literature, typically the first thing that a character says in a novel, in a story, is very important. It sets the tone for the whole, their whole character, okay? So, so you just, you got to know from the, from the first few dialogues, of, of a conversation in a story is going to set the tone and the character for who they're going to be. Well, Boaz comes and the first words out of his mouth are this, the Lord be with you. I mean, it's just Boaz comes walking. You hear that the Lord be with you. And then his workers answer the Lord bless you. Now this call and response echoes the central hope of blessing, the covenantal presence of God for the Hebrews. Blessing did not always entail wealth and prosperity. For the Hebrews, if you were to ask them, what is the key blessing? It's not just having a big house and lots going well for you. The ultimate blessing could be encapsulated in the single promise, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell with them. That's the blessing. To have a covenantal relationship with God, to be at peace with God, to know that the Lord is with you. That is blessing. That's the best blessing. And it goes all the way back to Eden when God walks in the core of the garden with his human creatures. Blessing. Presence of God. Now you think later of how this blessing comes again in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, his what? His face. In Hebrew, that entails his presence. The Lord make his presence to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his presence upon you and give you peace. Blessing and peace mingled together here. And so here comes this man from Bethlehem, 
who shows the same principle, divine blessing and divine presence inseparably melded together. It's interesting that this is the, the first words we hear out of his mouth. We don't hear him checking in on what's the status, boys? Hey, who let the donkey out? Hey, who forget to, forgot to shut the gate? We don't hear him belch or anything. The first thing out of his mouth is blessing that points to God's presence. I think that is absolutely significant. How amazing it is to see that this is the first words. It's not just a mere good morning. It's pointing to the covenantal relationship that God's people have. And it's with this that the general tone about God begins to change in the narrative. If you remember, Naomi is talking about how the Almighty's brought calamity upon her, how he's basically turned against her. She went away full, and he's brought her back empty. But Boaz begins to interpret God in a different light. Lord be with you. Man, have you just... And it just, just feels strange, doesn't it? That, to have that moment where God, the Almighty, has brought calamity upon me. He has turned against me. I went away full, and he brought me back empty. He has brought me back to ruin. And then to hear just the good covenantal blessing, the Lord be with you. The Lord's with you. What does this teach us about, the, about Boaz and about the type of redeemer he is? I think it teaches us that the ideal redeemer is one who draws us into the presence of God. The fact that Boaz's first words highlight his presence is significant and foreshadows how God's presence in Ruth's and Naomi's life will be displayed through him. And in this, we're reminded of our own redeemer who, like Boaz, proclaims what? God with us. God is with us. Confused and hurt though we may be because of his frowning providence, our smiling redeemer from Bethlehem reminds us that God has not abandoned us. He's a redeemer who brings the blessing of presence to us. Next, Boaz is a just redeemer. Boaz is a just redeemer. When Boaz comes into the field, he sees Ruth gleaning and inquires about her. Now at this point, I've been surprised at how many people don't know what gleaning is. They got a general idea. So I think it's good to maybe define it for the moment. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 22, you see an initial command to allow gleaning. God commands his people that when they harvest their fields, now they don't have these big combine tractors, right? Um, They have hand and sickle. And that's how it happens. Now what happens when you do that? Well, you're going to miss some stuff, aren't you? Things are going to drop to the ground. Lot, lots and lots of food is going to drop to the ground. God tells them, don't go back for it. Leave it. Why? Because what they accidentally dropped is his intentional sovereign provision for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the sojourner. They accidentally drop it. He sovereignly provides it. And so he tells them, you, you got one swoop, you go around and you do it, you miss something, that's, that's, that's me. I'm doing that for these people. You drop something, you, you have a donkey in the cart and some of it falls out, leave it. That's my provision. 
That's, that's our sovereign dad kind of walking by the apple cart going, whoops, grab me that. That's what he does. He provides for his people so that we're fed, so that we're taken care of because he cares for us. Now, here's the thing. How well Israel obeyed this command often served as one scholar calls it a covenantal thermometer that showed how hot or how cold their love for God and love for others were. I mean, you can, you can kind of fathom this, right? So you, you don't have a good relationship with God at one point. You've been starting to worship idols. You, you go to harvest your field, and you're realizing, we could get double the produce if I go back and scrape it. And so you go back and you get it. But what's the problem with that? The poor, the widow, the sojourner, the orphan, they don't get fed. It's a terrible situation. Now, in, in, in this, in accordingly... In, in, according to this kind of understanding of gleaning, gleaning's not a benevolence. I don't want you to think of gleaning as a gracious act. It's not just a gracious act. It is a just act. If you don't glean, you steal from the Lord and his poor. You have broken his law and it is merciless thievery. Now that seems strange, right? How can it be thievery when it's your own field? Well, that's the point of the Old Testament. The land is not theirs. The land belongs to God and everything in it. And they must do what he, as the landlord, tells them to do. They don't leave the grain on the field. They have stolen his provision that he sovereignly put there for the poor. No matter how selfish, how pointless, how, how ridiculous they are about it, God said to leave it, to provide for it, and that's all there is to it. It's his land, his ground, and they're his, and they're his poor. You don't leave it, you steal from God. You become an unjust person. And that's where you get in all the prophets and the small prophets where God's like calling them out for being unjust people, not ungracious people, not non-giving people, but unjust people. They haven't just not given enough for, a, for, their, for their final tax giving season. It's not that. It's that they've actually dipped into the poor bank and taken it out for themselves. That's unjust. In the days of judges, it seems like not a whole lot of people were concerned about that law. Um, in fact, there's a couple times in the book of Judges where Boaz says, Hey, Ruth, don't leave my field. Stick to my young ladies. And then Naomi comes back later and tells Ruth, If you leave the field, you just might get harassed. So don't leave Boaz's field or you might get assaulted. So it seems like even in these days, at this point, there's a valid fear that she's not going to get this anywhere else. Boaz is not a product of his generation. He is a just redeemer. Whereas the rest of Israel waxes and wanes, mostly wanes in their covenantal obedience to God, Boaz remains faithful. You know, I think it's interesting that we're never told how Boaz felt about his people's political enemies, the Moabites. How did Boaz feel about the border wars with Moab, for example? I'm just, I'm just interested. How does he feel about the fact that maybe they are in this like turf territory war and these Moabites have this old history of war? How did he feel about all that? When Boaz picks up Bethlehem times today and he reads that there's a whole bunch of Moabite raiders coming over the, the wall to take all their stuff, we never know how he really responds to that. Let me tell you why. It doesn't matter. Listen, 
For Boaz, it's extremely clear. This woman, Ruth, Moabite though she be, political enemy though she may be, coming from an entirely different people group though she may be, is a widow. And God has commanded. He just must obey. It's interesting. I just, I just, I fathom that because if he's a good Israelite, which we know that he is, he's a patriot of Israel, right? He, his, his people's enemies are his enemies. And yet the same man that would have been a true Israelite and a real Israelite and for his nation would have still been a man of complete justice and a heart that could be broken by even a Moabite widow. Didn't matter where she came from. God commanded him toward kindness. God commanded him to to provide for the sojourner, for the widow, for the orphan. You know, I think it's pretty unfortunate that the word justice has become a center of political arguments in recent days. Say the word justice, and suddenly everyone wants to immediately begin analyzing what you're saying and what your political stance is. What am I saying about immigration and everything I've just said? What am I saying about the Haitian refugees and everything I just said? What am I saying about the Afghan refugees and everything I just said? Let me give you good news. The Bible's not nearly as complicated as Fox News and CNN. It's simple. Let me tell you what the Bible says. You want to go to task on it? Let's go to task all day. There's things that we're called to be passionate about, and this is one of them. Let's go to task on it. In God's view, justice simply means this. It doesn't have CRT in the view. It doesn't have this in the view. It doesn't have that in the view. It doesn't have your Fox News commentator in view or your CNN commentator in view. Here's what justice is. God's heart is for the helpless, and he will judge all who ignore them, neglect them, or oppress them. That's justice. To the one who refuses to show kindness to the foreigner will stand before the Lord, not before their political party. The one who refuses to show kindness, love, loving kindness, hesed to the orphan, to the sojourner, which in Hebrew means the resident alien. The one who refuses to be kind, loving, providing a display of God's mercy. You don't just answer to the people around you. You answer to God. They are his poor. My friends, you can have your views about what we should do at the border. It doesn't matter to me. I'm all for borders. I'm all for fences. I don't see God telling them it doesn't matter that Moabites are raiding their land. I don't see that. But I do see Boaz having a very simple obedience to God to show love for the Moabite sojourner. The Moabite sojourner. The political enemy of his people. The Old Testament child sacrificers. The ones that danced half-naked in front of Israel at Bel Peor. The ones that they're literally responsible for the death of thousands of Israelites back in Numbers. 
And yet even a Moabite widow is allowed to glean, to have God's sovereign provision in her bag from Boaz's ground because of justice. He's a just redeemer. My friends, I I hate to say this, but if your view of justice cannot be fathomed when Christ comes back, you've got the wrong view of justice. I don't see Jesus checking ethnic national cards before being kind to someone any more than I see Boaz not helping a Moabite widow. Kindness means being kind to the sojourner to the orphan, to the widow. And Boaz is the kind of redeemer who is kind and just. He's a just redeemer. Now, his heart for justice, if you wonder, is this true? I mean, again, just by allowing her to glean, he's showing himself to be a redeemer of justice, right? A man of justice. He's not, he's not disobeying the law. He's giving the poor what the poor are due, no matter what nationality they are. She's a Moabite widow. doesn't matter. She gets a widow's share at the gleaning that comes in. doesn't matter where she comes from. If you think that's unique to Ruth, then you can turn to Psalm 72, which talks about our king, the Davidic king, the Messiah, who does the very same thing that Boaz did. Psalm 72, verse 4, may he, the king, defend the cause of the poor of the people. Which people? It doesn't tell you. This is the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Which needy? Doesn't tell you. Just says the needy. And crush the oppressor. Which oppressor? Where does he come from? Doesn't tell you. Just anyone that oppresses the needy. He's going to crush them. You can add to this in verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and needy. My friends, are you moved to pity those who have nothing? Move to compassion. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. You want to know what God views the needy as, the poor? Again, it doesn't matter where they come from. And precious is their blood in his sight. My friends, Boaz gives us a picture of the king that we have in Jesus. Jesus is not someone that's sitting around taking suggestions from you who we should be kind and just to. Jesus is the king who shows justice. And if your definition of justice doesn't match up with his definition of justice, you're the one that's wrong, not he. Kind of sad we have to keep coming back to some of these things, huh? But that's the world we live in. Somebody says something, we're going to go to the right. Someone says something, back to the left. Scripture is a lot more simple. Let's just stay founded on that. And if it doesn't match up with this, guess what? They're wrong. And you can, take, you can take stock on the fact that you're on the right side of history. Because when Jesus comes back, he will reward those who seek justice and show mercy. So, I digress. There you go. Redeemer who shows justice. He's also a redeemer who provides refuge. In addition to being a man who gives blessing gives justice, Boaz is also a redeemer who will eventually become Ruth's refuge, a Moabitess's refuge. After Boaz promises Ruth protection and lavishes kindness upon her, 
Ruth falls to her knees. She's just overwhelmed. My friends, I just, I just want you to, to imagine this. Right after the, the, the trade tower attack that happened in 9-11, Muslims were fearful of coming to our country. There were several of them that were, um, were, were just afraid that they would just get you know, looped into everything. And, and so I remember when we had our first Muslim student over at an international Bible study um, in Edmond, Oklahoma, when we were in college, we fed him. We loved him. We disagreed with his God, <laughs> obviously. We wanted him to believe in ours, but we fed him. We loved him. He needed a jacket. We took him to show him where he could find a jacket. Something happened with his financial aid. We marched down to the financial aid office with him. His car broke down. We gave him rides. I mean, just, just that, in the midst of the 9-11 thing, it just broke him. Who was he? After all, it was his religious group that had done all this, who was he to receive such kindness? Moab's in the same boat here. And this Moabitess is just broken. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? That's the word she uses. I'm a foreigner. I mean, one would expect Boaz to do all this for an Israelite widow, right? But a Moabite widow? Really? She's a foreigner? And not only that, she's this really terrible foreigner at that? She comes from a really terrible nation, and yet he still gives her grace? He doesn't really answer her question why he does it either. He just tells her he's heard of how she's cared for her mother-in-law and how she's left father and mother and her homeland to come to a people that she doesn't know. And then he blesses her, and he says this, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whom, whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, what's the irony about this is if you do like, like Hallmark movies, then you'll probably be chuckling at this, right? Because it's often the guy who says, well, maybe you'll meet someone, and it ends up being him, right? Well, this is the same thing that you see here. Maybe God will spread his wings over you, and you'll have refuge here. Guess whose wings are going to end up spreading over Ruth in the end? By Ruth chapter 3, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. He's a redeemer who provides refuge. He's a redeemer who spreads his wings. And in the old world, you know, if you wanted to cozy up next to a girl and bring her in to be your wife, you just spread the corner of your cloak and you kind of bring her in a little close. And that's what he does here in Ruth chapter 3. But he alludes to it in Ruth chapter 4. He's going to provide refuge. He's going to be her, eventually it'll be, He'll be her protection, her covering, the place where she can find shelter from the storm. Now, that same provision, protection, and covering that Boaz points us to is coming from an even greater redeemer who becomes a refuge for all of us. My friends, do you realize you're the Moabite in this case? You're the idolater. You're the sinner. You're the one that has the sketchy past that should send you straight to hell. And yet Jesus puts his wing over you and gives you refuge. I mean, what Boaz says here is just amazing. This Moabite deserves nothing of what he's saying about her. And yet he's saying, I pray you get refuge. And then he becomes the refuge. My friends, none of us deserve the refuge we have in Jesus. 
We're sexually immoral. Paul says that sexually immoral people do not inherit the kingdom of God. Greedy, lustful, angry, idol worshiping people do not get the kingdom of God. How then did you, if not by the grace of a redeemer who spreads his wings over you in grace and mercy and gives you refuge? So he points us to something even greater. When we come like Ruth as the dirty, filthy Moabite, we're not the good Israelite. We're the dirty, filthy Moabite that comes to Jesus and Jesus gives refuge and he never disappoints. Next, Boaz is a gracious redeemer who serves and satisfies. Now, as mentioned before, Boaz obeys the law. That's what makes him a just man, right? So only the just obey the law. So Boaz is a just man, but he doesn't merely obey the law. Quite the contrary, he constantly exceeds it. He goes beyond just doing the law, and he does more than he has to. So he's a man of justice, but he's also a man of grace. It was justice to allow Ruth to glean in his field. It was grace to allow her to drink from his vessels. He did not have to do that. In fact, Moabites and Israelites are not supposed to be drinking from the same vessels. It's unholy. It was justice to allow her to gather the fallen barley grain from the ground, but it was extravagant grace to let her eat at his table. He did not have to do that. I think Ruth too, if you ask me what's the most beautiful picture that we have in the Old Testament of what a redeemer should do, I would point you to Ruth too. This Moabite, former enemy, this person far off from the promises of God that has now come into Boaz's field. And here's what Boaz says to her at the mealtime. It's time to eat. Dinner bell has rung. Do you think Ruth is moving her way to the table? No, the table's not for her. The table's for the others, for the workers, for the Israelites, for his young men and women, not for her. She's the outsider. She has to sit on the ground and maybe find her own way to eat. And yet Boaz he includes her. You can just imagine everybody's coming to the table and he sees her sitting there. He says, Hey, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. How many, how many of you were the new kid in school that wasn't all that cool and had problems making friends? Okay. Did any of you have the buddy that was like, Hey, Hey, come eat with us. Boaz is that guy. He does that kind of thing. He allows a poor Moabite to not just glean in his field, he allows you to sit at his table. And having, I just want you to understand that having a Moabitess as a dinner guest in Israel, no, no, nobody does that. Don't do that. And if that were not enough, so he gives her a seat at the table, he tells her to come and eat, but then who gets up to serve her? Boaz rises from the table and passes her the roasted grain. I just want to point out the amazing side of this. He's the master of the field. Who should be serving him? Everybody else. Yet Boaz rises up like a waiter. You can just imagine him picking up his towel, roasted grain. He says, my lady. And he gives her roasted grain. That's the kind of service that Boaz gives. He who is entitled to be served, he who is entitled to be served, serves. That remind you of anybody else? I mean, I'm just kind of, I think I've heard of this before. 
Verse 14 says this, and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. That on its own may not be all that impressive to you. Okay, so she got full. Well, if you trace that phrase in other places in, t- in the scripture, that same phrase, ate and was satisfied, you find it in Psalm 78, verse 29, and you find it in Luke chapter 9, verse 17, when Jesus feeds the crowds, they eat and were satisfied and had, lefto- had leftovers. So it's over and over again. Anytime you find that phrase, ate and was satisfied, it's typically in the context of some form of redemption. Either Yahweh redeeming his people and giving them meat and manna in the desert, or Jesus feeding his people and giving them meat and manna in the desert, meat and bread in the desert. Either way, when redemption happens, the inevitable result is that God's people eat and are satisfied. What other man from Bethlehem do we know that though he is a master of the table, the master at the table, rises and takes on the form of a servant? What other redeemer has invited his enemies to sit at his table to eat and be satisfied by his grace? Jesus Christ. And you're the enemy sitting at the table who eats and is satisfied and has leftovers. In Ruth, Boaz's grace continues to overflow. You think that was amazing. I mean, the guy already allows this Moabite. She, she really doesn't deserve to be in this field at all. And he obeys the law, does what he has to, and allows her into the field. But then he does what he doesn't have to, gives her a seat at the table. And then he goes even so far, so far to say, you know what, guys? Just pull out some of the sheaves. Leave it on the ground for her. Like, he's, he's now telling them, okay, She can have whatever we accidentally drop, but I want you to accidentally on purpose drop some things, okay? So that she can have more. Ruth leaves the field with about 22 liters of barley grain. 22 liters. Those of you that are like homesteaders, that's a lot of grain, right? Alice, am I right? 22 liters? Okay. It's a lot of grain. It's extravagant kindness and extends beyond the law. It's way more than any gleaner could have done for one day's work. Now, I think that's just an amazing example for us. How many of us are in relationships right now that we're only doing what's expected, but not going beyond? How many of us are, are those that are meeting the bare minimum, right? So how many marriages do we have that the man would say, well, I don't cheat on her, <laughs> okay? But do you love her and serve her and satisfy her in your grace and mercy? How many of us have friendships that, well, we don't gossip about them, but then do you go the extra mile and pull out sheaves of encouragement and, and grace and mercy and service for them? I mean, my friends, Boaz is showing us what Jesus is going to do for us. Jesus didn't meet just the bare requirements of atonement. He could have just died and forgiven sins and done nothing else. But Ephesians says he did way more. He died, suffered, was buried, rose again, and then raised you up so that in the coming ages, the Father might show, here's the key word, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. That's got so many clauses, I don't even know what to do with it. (laughs) Immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. I mean, it almost sounds like a drink. It's grace mixed, shaken, stirred together with kindness and put on bottomless tap for God's people to sip and pour for themselves for all eternity. 
over and over and over again. It's the vanilla ice cream, the chocolate lava cake, and then the hot fudge on top of it, and you can have as much of it as you want. <laughs> God's kindness upon kindness upon kindness upon kindness. I'm on a diet, so there's going to be a lot of food illustrations. <laughs> kindness. That fills us up and satisfies us. And where does this kind, gracious food come from? From the one who raises from the table, the master who raises from the table and serves it to us and satisfies us. Finally, we have a redeemer whose kindness does not forsake us. Ruth leaves Boaz's field with a massive haul for a day's work. We've already talked about that 22 liters. So much that Naomi's just left asking, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. When Ruth answers that she has been working in Boaz's field, Naomi responds, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Who's she talking about? Is she talking about Boaz or talking about the Lord? No, scholars and commentaries spend pages and pages talking about whether she's referring to the Lord here who hasn't forsaken the living and the dead or Boaz whose kindness hasn't forsaken the living and the dead. We don't really know. I think it applies to both though. Because Boaz's kindness is an extension of God's kindness, and God is extending kindness through Boaz. Now, if this is true, then Boaz is a redeemer who reminds us that God's kindness extends beyond life and death. He's, he's got a kindness that doesn't end when you die. It hasn't forsaken the dead or the living. Where in the world do we see Jesus in that? Let me just recommend to you Romans 14. For to this end, Christ died, and we could probably add in parentheses here, for you, and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. And then he goes on just to add on to the topper of that. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. My friends, we have a redeemer whose kindness never forsakes life, death. The cancer goes away, you're his. The cancer takes you and you're in his presence, you're still his. Life and death, God's kindness never forsakes in Christ. And that's the kind of redeemer Boaz shows us that we need. So we could apply it to Jesus. Blessed be our redeemer whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now before we end and we leave this part of the narrative behind, we should be asking how we can apply this. We've seen how this points to Jesus, right? Clearly, Boaz is standing in the place of what's to come, Jesus. I liked what Mitchell Chase wrote about it. He said, if someone invited you to listen to a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem and Judah who fulfilled the law and exceeded the law with his acts of mercy and abundant kindness uh, before entering into a covenant with a bride from the nations, who's that story about? That story could be about Jesus or Boaz. So he, he, he's right in that. And so we see clearly Boaz and Jesus kind of echoing each other here. Now the question is this, if Boaz images the redemption of Christ, well, Boaz, a mere man, not God in flesh, if Boaz, a mere human, images Christ so well, do we? When was the last time someone fell on their knees and said, who am I to receive your kindness? When was the last time someone actually received a cup of water from your hands? 
I mean, we can gripe about politics all we want, but in the midst of the griping, I mean, nobody's actually being served. When was the last time you fed someone? Not someone that you were friends with, not someone that could feed themselves in their home, but someone that actually needed your meal as a sampling of the grace of God. When was the last time that someone just was awestruck by provision and kindness and mercy upon mercy upon mercy, though they know that based on paper, you should hate everything about them. Every believer is not only a Ruth who has received kindness from Boaz, we are also called to be a Boaz who displays God's kindness. You are Ruth, but now you've been called to be a Boaz and to give kindness upon kindness. Our kindness fueled by his compassion. And so my prayer is simply this, that in the end, bitter and broken people will see through our kind, gospel-centered words and actions that God has not left them without a redeemer. So that's where we are. Genesis 1, frowning providence. Genesis 2, God begins to show his smiling face. Genesis 1, completely confused and dumbstruck at what God is doing Genesis 2, God becomes his own interpreter. And so we, having read this and basked in and glimpsed and seen whispers of our great and glorious Savior and Redeemer Jesus, we, in hope of God being able to interpret his own redemptive purposes to us, wait and trust in the Lord in all that we do. Let's pray. Father God, I... uh, Pray, Lord, that you will use this very poor and uh, incredibly shallow at times explanation of your word to move, to convict, to confront, to soften, to embolden, to encourage your people. Father, there are Ruths in this room right now that just need to hear the good news that there is a Redeemer, that his heart beats for them. And there are people here right now that are not being Boazes who need to be called up to that work. And then there are others who try their best to emulate Boaz every day of their life. God, I pray that you will meet all these different people in all their different places and that you will pour out your grace and your sanctification and your mercy and your love in their hearts so that we can better reflect the Redeemer from Bethlehem that we have received. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.